with card carrying Bayesian at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post game podcast. Good afternoon. This is a special edition of the podcast. We wanted to celebrate the Houston Astros victory last night in Game 7, their first world championship. It's a celebration around here because they are an analytics-savvy team, but also because their general manager, Jeff Luno, is a Wharton grad. He did his dual degree here back in the day, and we had a chance to visit with him last February. We were in Houston for the Super Bowl, did a special down there. Jeff was good enough to come across town and spend about 30 minutes with us. Great chance to get some insight into how he runs the club. We want to share that with you. And over the course of half an hour, he talked about his relationship with his owners. He talked about hiring, how to hire. He talked about fan patience, catcher framing, gut versus analytics, a little bit on Sam Hinkie and Paul DePodesta, as well as his relationship with his manager, A.J. Hinch. He's a good person to listen to. More people will be listening to him because, as he says in the interview, whoever wins the World Series, teams tend to copy. So here's our chat with Jeff Luno last February in Houston joined now by Jeff Luno, general manager of the Houston Astros. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. When someone asked me if I was willing to do a Wharton Moneyball show, I thought, why not? I went to Wharton. <laughs> so t- tell, us about your, tell us about your love of Wharton. How, how has it, do you think, influenced your life in the years since? I had an incredible experience there. I spent five years on campus, got a dual degree, uh, finance degree from Wharton, and loved every minute of it. The students there were exceptional. The professors were exceptional. And it really set me up for my, my career when you're able to think the way that you're taught to think at Wharton. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter what you do. And I've had, this is my fourth career. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had success in all of them because of the foundation that was laid when I was at University of Pennsylvania. But Jeff, you were also in the M&T program, which yes. is management and technology. Yes. Double degree in engineering. It's right. And you said four careers, so you're, we know you're in baseball now. Right. I think you wandered through McKinsey at some I point. Did. What, I what, did. What have been those four careers? My first career was as an engineer okay. and loved it. Uh, actually put to use the T part of the M&T. Okay. Uh, then went back to business school, uh, went to McKinsey, spent five years there as a management consultant, and then did two tenure before I ended up in baseball. So it's it's not the traditional path to becoming a sports executive. <laughs> right. But I think my education and my experiences outside of baseball have been really important for me in being able to do my job here. Can you give us an example of that? Where, like, in, in, You're not going to be able to capture it sure. all, but one way in which you think you're better as a, as a professional baseball executive because of your non-baseball experience. I think when you talk about player evaluation, there's a lot that goes into it. You've got scouts evaluating players based off of their experience. You've got the number crunchers evaluating players based off of what they see. And then it really is uh, the economics role of how do you take the output from the scouts and the analysts and turn it into dollars and cents. And you need to understand the market. You need to understand supply and demand. You need to understand a lot of things, uh, risk profile of your organization, Mm -hmm. cash flow, valuations, all of that. And those fundamentals are, are really similar to a lot of other businesses and being able to incorporate that thinking has been very beneficial for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. When did you first think you might want to apply that thinking to baseball? When I was at Penn, I thought I loved baseball and I'd love to be in sports, whether it was football, baseball, basketball. I did wrote you? a couple letters, one to Peter O'Malley, 
because he had gone to Penn. Okay. Figured, why not? An alumni. Did you play any baseball? Never heard back. Not at Penn, I didn't. I played uh, in high school. I wasn't very good, but Mm -hmm. I loved it. Um, I did join a, uh, started a fantasy baseball league when I was at Penn. And this is back in the 80s when the rotisserie (laughs) rotisserie leagues were just getting started. So I could tell you every prospect in every organization back then. But I didn't think I'd work in the industry. Followed it closely when I was at Kellogg for Business School. I wrote a paper on the economics of baseball, and I actually wrote a paper about how the Chicago Cubs needed to change their strategy in order to okay. compete consistently. Uh, Only they, took them 20 years to They didn't it, yeah. read my paper, but uh, Theo and Jed uh, certainly have done a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really wasn't until after Michael Lewis wrote the book Moneyball mm-hmm. that I received a phone call from uh, the DeWitt family, and they asked me, to come out and have a conversation. They had um, looked at what was going on in the industry. They wanted to bring someone in with business and technology background. Jeff, how'd they find you across the big wide world? Yeah, well, uh, Bill DeWitt's uh, son-in-law um, and I worked together at McKinsey. Oh, wow. And okay. one thing that's been consistent throughout my career, everybody that knows me knows how what a passion I have for baseball. So when I was at McKinsey, I used to take people to Cubs games and White Sox uh-huh. games and I was doing all these fantasy leagues. So people knew... I loved the sport, okay. and I was passionate about it, and I think that's really uh, what it came down to. Okay. And the DeWitt saw that the world was going that way, or that there might be an advantage of grabbing someone from that world? Absolutely. And I think, you know, baseball's an interesting industry. It's very traditional in a lot of ways. Uh, a club who is employing best practices and having delivering above-average results can disclose their secrets in a best-selling book, and... <laughs> Half the industry chooses to ignore it or actually move in the opposite direction. Right. Uh, Bill DeWitt obviously read it and thought, you know, this is interesting. I believe in a lot of the things that Oakland is doing. I have a bigger payroll. I don't necessarily have the people in my front office that are capable of developing the systems or the uh, analytics that we need to do this. So I'm going to have to find someone externally. And that's Mm -hmm. how they found me. Jeff, Mm -hmm. give me a sense of timeline. This This was was 2003. 2003. Yeah, so it was just a few months after uh, Moneyball was written. He reads the book and makes the change straight away. I was uh, working for, I was president of an apparel company on the West Coast and had no intention of leaving. A month later, I'm in St. Louis uh, meeting Walt Jockety and John Moselock and talking to them about the future and and started work there. And um, right after that, it had nothing to do with me because I just got in there. Cardinals go to the World Series uh, in 2004, NLCS in 2005, and win the World Series in 2006. So I thought, this is easy. <laughs> I, one of the, I did an analysis, um, which I do in my, my statistics class. We use, we try to predict how payroll forecast wins, and it does that pretty well. And the, the team that's most exceptional is the Oakland A's, but number two is the Cardinals. Right. And you mean they're out, outperforming their outperforming payroll, basically? their regression, if you yeah. use the statistical yeah. model. Yeah. They outperform their regression. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's they adopted it early. I, now let's fast forward to 2016. Are there any teams still not doing it? At this point, if you look at the transitions in the front offices, all 30 teams, for the most part, have analytical departments. They have general managers that have uh, spoken about the importance of using information and decision making. So uh, the reality is the advantage that you can gain from doing the money ball approach really has dissipated. It's now a level playing field, which means we all are looking for what the next area of advantage is. And we know they're out there, whether it's in the medical field or the sleep research or mm-hmm. you know, applying the new technologies that are coming into our game. Everybody's working on these things, but some clubs are going to do a better job 
of finding the advantages and hopefully sustaining them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as you're sort of suggesting, there's a less advantage in terms of kind of the player valuation aspect of, of baseball. Uh, but what about kind of the in-game strategies and stuff like that? Like, for example, defensive shifting sure. is something that's been such a dramatic change over the last decade. I know the Astros are kind of on the, the leader, forefront, I think they're uh, the forefront of that change. So is there... Is there stuff like I mean, the sh mm -hmm. is there stuff like defensive shifting, like that's still kind of at some of the more forward-thinking? Tell us what that is, and make sure that we let well, your no, competitors I mean, you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I think if all you have to do is look at the playoffs from last yeah. year, and you can see one of the big trends in our game is taking the starting pitcher out at the appropriate time and utilizing multiple good relievers to get you across the finish line. And I think the traditional model, I had a great opportunity to work with Tony Larissa for a long time in St. Louis, and he was a, a pioneer, the one who really uh, created the role of the closer, and that profile really stuck there for a long time, and I think it really wasn't until the last few years that clubs started to realize, and, and a lot of this had been written about for for decade, but clubs started to implement using your best reliever maybe in the seventh, maybe in the eighth, using your best reliever at the time when the game is on the line. And I think we saw no better example of that than, than what Cleveland did and what Chicago did uh, during the playoffs. It was very exciting. So I think most a lot of clubs will try that. But the reality is, you know, whoever wins the World Series or gets the World Series, teams tend to copy them. And we saw it was all about the dominant relievers that Kansas City had. You know, back when the uh, other teams were good, it was the speed or, or the great one-two pitching punch. Yeah. So, you know, we tend to exaggerate that maybe a little much. But no, I mean, I think that's right. I think there's sort of always a narrative kind of wrapped around, right. like, the recent success, some of which recent is just bias, due, I think yeah, yeah. Some, some of which is due to luck, but some of which may actually be kind of a systematic change in the industry. Right. So. But there is a response. I mean, so, for example, the older players... I, they just can't react to the shift. They don't. They can't change their right. swing. But I can imagine the new generation of players being, from an early age, taught. You know, you got to spray the ball. They're going right. to just shift against you, and you're, you'll have no career. Mm. And th there's nothing better than an incentive to, to change. No, no question about that. I remember we signed Carlos Pena back in I think 2013, and he was one of the most shifted on players in baseball because he's a left-handed power hitter. And you know, I asked him how he dealt with it, and he said, Jeff, you know, the reality is. For a while, I tried to figure out a way to go the other way and to beat the shift. And then I realized if I get a single the other way, that's nowhere near as good as what I, mean, I get paid to hit home runs. So I can't go away from my game. So you've got that dynamic in play. You've also got the fact that these left-handed sluggers, and we also do it to right-handed hitters as well. Which is have, have complicated. I mean, how, yeah. what do you, really? Well, they, they've come up through the minor leagues. They've never learned how to bunt. They've never really tried that. Uh, I think a lot of organizations now are teaching these types of profile players to do some things differently in the minor leagues. So at least they're used to it when they get to the big leagues. So I think there's going to be a natural reaction. Players are going to become accustomed to it and, and figure out ways to beat it. So we're here in Houston with Jeff Luno. Jeff is the general manager for the Houston Astros. Three of the Wharton Moneyball crew, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and this is Cade Massey. Jeff, you're talking about changing the game, you know, trying to work against tradition. You had the chance when you moved from St. Louis to Houston to kind of build things into, as you wanted to. It must have been different for you in, at that moment than it was when you first got to St. Louis. What are the pros and cons of starting kind of from scratch or having leeway? That's uh, a great question. I remember when I was interviewing Jim Crane, one of the questions I asked him, because normally when you take these jobs, they come with a lot of constraints. You have to keep this manager. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. 
And I asked him, I said, I just let me have it. What, what are my constraints if, mm-hmm. if I take this job? And he ripped out a blank sheet of paper from the pad he was holding, and he tossed it to me across the desk. Wow. And I still have that blank sheet of paper <laughs> in my office because it was important for me to know that if I came over, we were going to have uh, an opportunity to do things the right way from mm-hmm. scratch. Now, uh, this is a traditional industry. You have a lot of employees when you take over a baseball operations department. And so there was... Uh, you know, pros and cons of, of that approach. But I think at the end of the day, to be able to look at a clean sheet of paper and think, okay, if we're going to do this the right way, what questions do we need to answer? What information do we need and how do we design it mm-hmm. was a breakthrough for us. And from 2012 until 2014, our fans were frustrated. We had a terrible mm-hmm. team on the big league level. We were accumulating prospects, but we were pursuing a strategy that we felt was the best for long-term success. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't until 2015 that we made the playoffs unexpectedly that our fans and the industry started to recognize that maybe we were onto something. Uh, Was it all worth it at the end of the day? I think so. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of our fans probably would argue with that Mm -hmm. because we did go through a couple lean years, but we really didn't have a choice. We had had one of the worst rosters in baseball and we had one of the worst farm systems in baseball. Mm. We had to start somewhere. Mm. And a lot of it, you know, was building the infrastructure, the analytic team, the getting the right scouts in place, the right process, so that as the years went by, we would be able to produce. Were people reluctant to come work for you because you weren't doing the traditional thing? You must have been drawing from a different pool in some sense. Uh, to a certain extent, I've been drawing from a different pool even back in the days with the Cardinals. I remember hiring people that didn't have the traditional scouting experience to become area scouts. Okay. Uh, a lot of different... I'd hired some coaches that didn't have the traditional coaching profile. A lot of those people that I hired back mm. in the days of the Cardinals are now uh, executives and or leaders of various organizations. So it seemed to work pretty well. You can't ignore the experience and the, and the wisdom of the people that have been in the industry for a long time, but you have to mm-hmm. complement those people with the diverse set. And I think that's what we did in St. Louis and was able to do that in Houston. And I got to tell you, every time I have an opening, I still get 450 to 500 resumes, yeah, so there's right. not a lack of people raising their hands. Jeff, can we step out of baseball for a second and just ask him? Professional fight with me, Nadi. He wasn't Jeff, asking you. This guy's, a, this guy's a football guy. I'm a baseball guy. In the, yeah. Je- Jeff, people struggle hiring, and they mostly don't have years of you know batting statistics on, on which to base decisions. You, you're hiring people. You're hiring execs and scouts. What is one tip you would pass along for making good hiring decisions? I think the person needs to fit in well with the rest of the organization. One thing that we've done at Houston is every time we bring someone in for manager, director, or any of those levels that are going to interact with a lot of people, we make sure that everybody gets a chance to interview them. Now, we don't, we're not looking for clones, but we are looking for fit. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of smart people out there, but getting someone that has the ability to work well with the rest of the team and to contribute mm-hmm. uh, is, is important. And the best way to figure that out is not to just interview someone, look at their resume and make a decision. It's to let everybody, the, the entire senior team really collaborate on making those hiring mm-hmm. decisions. Mm-hmm. Especially when you have a unique club, a unique group yeah, of people. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, so uh, I want to come back actually to, you, do, you mentioned fan patience during those lean years. Do you kind of feel like fans... Are baseball fans a little bit more patient than maybe some of the other sports? Just because, you know, in baseball, it does take longer to kind of overhaul an yeah. organization. Pe- players, ca- players that are drafted are like four or five years away from the big leagues when they're drafted. Um, as opposed to something like basketball where, you know, a, a player can make almost an immediate impact. Right. Do, you think fans, do you think fans sort of 
most baseball fans recognize that? And are they systematically a little bit more patient than, say, basketball or football fans? It's a great question. I think fans are never patient, regardless mm. of the sport, because they like instant gratification, as do we all. But in baseball, the, fan, the typical fan these days is actually aware of your farm system and who your top prospects are, and they understand that you know, when you go out and you draft a, a player like we did last year, Forrest Whitley, out of Alamo Heights High School in San Antonio, he's 18 years old. He's not going to make the big leagues in the next year or two, but they get excited. They start following him, and so there is a, a certain level of patience baked in because they understand the nature of the process. Also, the difference is that we have a game every night, and in football, you lose a game, and you have to carry that all week until next Sunday. You know, we get right back at it and go out there tomorrow right. night. So somewhere in the week, we're going to win a game, and people are going to also feel base- like things are on the upswing. Baseball's an experience yeah. that that almost like a family experience that people go to the ballpark. The quality of the team isn't necessarily that significant. I wanted to ask you a, a more this, technical... This from a Yankees fan. Can, yes. Is this yeah. even okay? That's not <laughs> okay. That's not okay. <laughs> yeah, I... Right, let's, 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 get, let's get back that to the comment is dripping with entitlement, <laughs> it, my it friend. Is. Uh, one of the things that... The, the, the general question I have as a, as a technical person, although I played baseball, but nevertheless, what I would... Insights that, that I or my students would bring would be very technical. Um, in our experience, and I mean that also Shane as well, is that when we go to the, the team, there's a, a sense that you'll never get this to the to the baseball professionals. If they can't see it, they have a hard time with it. So I want to ask something specific. Catcher pitch framing has been around for a few years now. And when I first read about it, I was very intrigued by it. It's high, highly technical. It's the ability for a catcher to influence the, the call. And it's an observation made almost entirely through data. And the valuation is also made entirely through data. My question is for you is, um, how did the baseball people react to this? Did they, was there pushback, and do you buy it? The answer is yes, there's pushback on any of those things, the shift, the framing, any of the things that, that are new and different, and that's natural. We hired one of the foremost experts on catcher framing, Mike Fast, who had done a lot of research independently prior to coming to the Astros, so we had an in-house expert. I think the key to us, for us, was a couple of things. First of all, our manager last couple of years, is a former catcher. He went to Stanford. His name's A.J. Hinch. And he very much understands the nature of grabbing an extra strike as a catcher because everybody intuitively tries to do that, instinctively tries to do that as a, as a catcher anyway. The, the key for education for us for the catchers was building a tool where you can link the results to video so they can actually see the pitches where they took a ball from inside the strike zone to outside or presented a ball in a way that the umpire called a strike. And once they visually see it, and then we show them how the data aggregates up to an answer, uh, they were able to look at that, and then the next question is, okay, now what do I do? What drills do I work on to get better at that? How do I get better? One of the greatest examples of a pitcher, of a catcher going from a below-average framer to almost an elite framer was our catcher the last few years, Jason Castro. Three years ago, he was below-average. Last year and the year before, he turned into an elite framer, and that wasn't a coincidence. And I think so. It, 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 to us, it demonstrated that this skill can be taught even to a major league catcher who's been doing it for a while. Jeff, you, the, one of the battles here is influencing those who can either make decisions or implement the insights from analytics. What advice would you have for analysts on how to be more influential? You know, having a better regression right. is not enough, essentially. <laughs> I think the most important thing, if you have an opportunity to work in a club, you get this chance, and if you're outside, you don't. Talk to the people in the industry who are going to be affected by the recommendations that you're making. 
and try and understand from a scout's perspective why they see things maybe a little differently or from a player's perspective why they would be resistant to uh, whatever it is that you're you're working on. To us, that's been uh, a big part of implementation of any program, getting proactively ahead of time mm-hmm. with the people that are going to be impacted and also getting their feedback because oftentimes you'll get a piece of feedback that your analysis was not really recognizing and Mm -hmm. once you bake it in you realize that it doesn't need to be that extreme or Mm -hmm. you can soften it a little bit Uh, you can get 80 percent of the value uh, rather than 100 percent by presenting it in a way and 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 a change management program that allows you to really have an impact Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're talking to jeff luno general manager of the houston astros here in houston this is Cade massey with shane jensen and Audie Weiner. How do you reconcile when the, the gut goes against the numbers, basically, or when the subjective expertise goes against the quantitative analysis? That's probably one of the toughest things that, that as an executive, um, I have to do because, first of all, there's, it's, it's very rare that all the indicators are pointing in the right direction. Right. So you're, you're dealing with decisions where the, the arrows are flying all over the place. Right. And you've got uh, some analytic information supporting one decision and some analytics information supporting another. You've got different scouts with different points of view. And you have to try and aggregate all that and, and come up with a final decision. Um, it's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there are times in my career where I have gone against the, uh, the information and gone with my gut. A couple of those have worked out. Mm-hmm. I would say, um, you know, Joe Kelly is a pitcher now for the Red Sox. Uh, all of our analytic information was pointing towards other players in the draft. Um, I'd seen Joe Kelly. I kind of had a feeling about him, even though he only pitched three innings this draft year. And I, I drafted him, made it to the big leagues, and had a great career. That was, that was a good one. I, st- I tend to remember <laughs> you that remember one. remember that one. I remember that one. Right. There's some that I made. Uh, I'll give you another example. Jed Lowry versus Tyler Green. Um, Tyler Green looked the part. Jed Lowry had the performance. They were both in the same draft class. Mm-hmm. Uh, we drafted Tyler Green. And, yes, he made it to the big leagues and had a career. But he has had nowhere near the career of Jed mm-hmm. Lowry. Jed mm-hmm. Lowry was an undersized second baseman and just didn't look the same as, as mm-hmm. Tyler Green. Mm-hmm. But isn't the money ball lesson that you're not supposed to go by how it looks? Right. But I did. And it was a mistake. <laughs> you're being human, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the owners here have to have an extraordinary either faith or patience or both to allow you to make these kinds of mistakes. And still, you know, keep you around. Right. I mean, professional sports owners aren't known for having that kind of faith right. their long-term view. How unique is that, do you think, in the situation you're in now? And how, how often do you see owners have that kind of combination? I think it's more and more because I think owners, at least in, in our industry, and I think it's in baseball, but it's, I think it's happening in other sports as well, recognize that um, we're playing the odds. And as long as we have the odds nudged in our favor... We're going to have better outcomes over over the long haul. Now, it's not like blackjack. We can't sit there and play a million hands. We mm-hmm. only get to play 10 mm-hmm. to 20 hands. Mm-hmm. But uh, if, if an owner has confidence that you're using the information and you're making the best possible decision, they understand that the outcomes are variable and there's a lot that mm-hmm. goes into it. Um, now, I do a, a, as much as I can to go back to our owner. And this, this applies to both Bill DeWitt and Jim Crane. Both owners I've worked with have been tremendous. Um, when you make a mistake or when the outcome doesn't go the way you think it should or you predicted it would, you need to go back and say, did we learn anything about mm-hmm. that? Was mm-hmm. there anything in our process that was wrong? Is there any information we missed? And as long as you're doing that and being honest about it, 
um, you get the confidence that mm-hmm. let's go back, let's take another, you know, let's spend another night at the blackjack table and see what we get this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, I, I don't, you may or may not want to comment on this, but you, you had cross paths here in Houston with Sam Hinkie at least a sure. little bit, and you must know Daryl and yeah, those guys. And you know, often we find that that guys like yourselves will talk with guys across sports more readily than right. guys in their same sport, right? right? Because it's more sensitive. When you see what happened with Sam, of course, that was in our backyard yep. up in Philadelphia. He seemed to be doing so much that was right from an analytical right. perspective, and things didn't quite work out in the long run, at least not for him. They made yeah. for the club yet. You just talked about kind of learning from your mistakes. Do you right. ever learn from other people's mistakes? And what might you take away from Sam's experience? Well, Sam, I, I love Sam. I think he's one of the brightest people I've ever met in sports or actually across mm-hmm. any industry. And his uh, letter of resignation or whatever it was, famous. Um, was, mm-hmm. you know, clearly he's, he's way more studied. And, uh, <laughs> it was a manifesto than, than in addition to being a letter of resignation. Yeah. I, yeah. I enjoyed reading it. You know, the other um, incident uh, or experience like that was when Paul De Podesta worked for the Dodgers. I think he's also very bright and has done a tremendous mm-hmm. job and now is working in football. Uh, both of these guys, I don't know. I can't speak to it. But it could be that it's really it was a communication um, gap between, you know, they clearly thought they were doing the right thing. And, and if you look in retrospect at the moves that Paul made or, the, or you know, the moves that Sam mm-hmm. made, they set their organizations up right. for success. Right. But were they able to manage all the stakeholders? And I think it's important in our position that we spend the, the requisite amount of time managing the stakeholders, not only the fans, the mm-hmm. media, the, the influencers in the organization, the ownership, all of those stakeholders. And I spend a large part of my job managing those stakeholders. What, what does that look like? Managing the stakeholders. Like, what are some specific things you do when you're managing some stakeholders? That sounds it exactly com- right. Yeah, it all comes down to communication okay. and, and being, you know, we decided, uh, Jim and I decided in late 2011, we're going to be as open as we possibly can with our fans. Mm-hmm. And we were having a terrible year in, in 2012. And I wrote a letter that, they, that we sent to every season ticket holder and it got posted on our site explaining what was going on and sort of asking for some, some time, some patience. Uh, but it also is the day-to-day communication. You know, one, a very um, influential manager I had at McKinsey used to tell me that in the morning on his way to work, he would uh, think about all the different stakeholders on, on the study that we were on and when's the last time he communicated with that person and, wow. and what he needs to either send an email or a text or call them. Wow. And if you sort of build best practices like that, you'll realize I haven't talked to my owner in a week and we've made a couple transactions I, I should probably reach out explain them mm-hmm. talk about what we're thinking about uh, I haven't called our manager I may mean, speak to my manager every day but haven't talked to him in a while or I mm-hmm. haven't reached out to our AAA manager keeping everybody feeling like they're connected is huge it mm-hmm. really is all about communication mm-hmm. how much contact do you have with the manager in the in terms of signing players draft that used to be the manager's job too yeah absolutely. back in the day the manager was the gm and the gm was right. just some some executive who pushed paper around right. um and now it's the gm who seems to really run the team it's 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 a big deal but the manager of course is still the manager right so how does that does the manager kind of input have a lot of input on on, on who you're signing and for, trading and for me it's important because well first of all aj hinch was an assistant general manager he was uh, he's worked in the front office before in various capacities he's super smart and he knows the industry really well uh, i keep him abreast of everything that we're thinking about doing he has input he knows players from a different perspective he has a different network of getting information and so i i incorporate him before we make any decision um, he's almost like having a, an additional assistant GM, which is wow. terrific. Wow. Likewise, if he's thinking about tinkering with the lineup, um, it's his lineup to make every day, and he's the one that makes all those decisions. But 
Um, he'll consult me, and we'll talk about it after games, and he'll always ask my opinion. Uh, do you think I should have done this in the sixth inning? Of course, I don't really tell him at that point. I'd rather wait until the following day or maybe next week because, you know, if we lost a game, it's not it's not the appropriate time to necessarily second-guess any decisions. But um, we do have a good relationship. It's, it's, it's really important. I've seen good ones and I've seen bad ones in our sport. And having a good relationship between the general manager and the field manager is, is critical. Okay. We've just got a couple minutes left. What are you doing with yourself? What does a general manager do in February? We're busily preparing for spring training. We have Two weeks a, a think, couple right? players still left in the arbitration process. Okay. We're preparing for all of our meetings. We have a brand new, gorgeous spring training facility that's coming online Where is in, in West Palm Beach. We're okay. sharing it with the Nationals. Okay. We got construction here at our stadium here. Our center field's coming in. Okay. So there's there's a lot happening, and we also are keeping tabs on the rest of the free agent market. There's more free agents still unsigned this year than there have been in years past. Okay. Uh, I think the old men, people don't really want to hire them. That's well, the, the young. The analytics have said, I don't know. There's still, some good, the there's still some good value out there, so we're, <laughs> we're keeping an eye on it. We're you know preparing for spring. There's, there's a lot that goes into preparing for spring training. It's, it's uh, at the only time of the year where we have all of our baseball operations folks mm. in the same place and all of our players in the same place. So we, it's, it's, it, you know, it's nice. I can't wait for it to get going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, we appreciate your being here. Uh, we, we, we pull for you guys. We've been watching you for a few years now. You surprised us in 2015. Oh, what, the surprise what, the Yankees. Let you, me tell you about what that. What should we expect in 2017? <laughs> uh, what do you think? The, the Astros have a 100% record of going to the playoffs in years when one of our alumni are, are being inducted into the Cooperstown Hall of Fame. <laughs> uh, so nice. we're, we, we think we're in a good That's role good for this That's year. Great. That's a nice That's fantastic. Well, nice That's a street. nice thing for the, yeah. for the Astros franchise. All right, Jeff, thank you. Thanks for having me on, guys. General Manager of the Houston Astros, appreciate you being here. Thanks.